Hello. Hey. I'm not sure what that quirk was all about, but uh, I will be right. Ooh, look at that. Oh, that is frightening. That is frightening. I figured since we're doing 80s and I've just <laughs> rewatched the entire Predator series, this was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I look like the Predator, but it's creepy all the same. <laughs> <laughs> and if I get sick of this at some point, I could always go to uh, the other thing I'm going to talk about, which is uh, this. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, crew. Yeah, crew. party on rock, rock on rock well, on well welcome podcasters to another episode of the party on john cast uh, most excellent podcast covering theology music and whatever we're drinking and whatever we want to talk about uh, this is a uh, reverend angel of death aka reverend sal a uh Minister of Word and Sacrament in the PCUSA in the Validated Ministry of Hospice Chaplaincy. This is the rockin' and sometimes creepy Reverend Todd uh, Laddick, who is uh, coming to you in thermal uh, technicolor. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I am an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church of Greater New Jersey, serving a church in Newton, New Jersey, on higher ground from somebody south of us. And I am the Viking Vicar, formerly of Rock Island, Illinois, um, and South Park Presbyterian Church. Uh, South Park Presbyterian no longer exists, Rock Island does, but now we are located uh, on top of the hill in Parma, Ohio. Uh, fun fact, the same town that the Drew Carey Show took place in. Cool. I just realized I didn't. Did you all hear me speak? Yes. Like that yeah. came through good. Cool. Yeah. I realized I didn't even have my microphone in front of me. I'm just sitting here talking. Like, ooh. Yeah, cool. We're good. We're good. So awesome. we do have a uh, we have a special guest with us, and we are a uh, we are a University of Dubuque Theological Seminary heavy podcast this week this month uh, with three of us on the show. Sorry, Todd. That's okay. Um, we, I'm from Dubuque in spirit. That's right. Before, so, before I became Methodist, that might have been my way, you know. I've, I've never well, heard Methodist, anybody describe Methodist themselves is, uh, as such. Yeah, UDTS uh, is half Methodist. You would have fit in just that's fine. Right. I would have fit in fine as a Methodist there, but I, I'm just saying I grew up Presbyterian. So, you know, if I had stayed Presbyterian, probably Princeton, but still, you never know. Yeah. There you go. So we have uh, we have the rockin' Reverend Dr. Chris with us. So Chris, introduce yourself. Well, uh, greetings to all. Um, my name is Chris Doyle. I'm a PCUSA pastor 
uh, graduated from Dubuque, of course, uh, as Sal and, and Pastor Blake did. And I'm serving a couple of small churches in New Jersey currently, uh, very close to Newton. Um, so we are uh, kind of the largest Dubuque contingent, I think, on the East Coast right here with uh, another Dubuque pastor up in Sparta. That's um, right. And yeah. I am I'm just thrilled to be here. Yeah, you you folks from uh, Dubuque are, uh, you know, pretty rocking folks. So I, I have nothing against the uh, seminary. <laughs> Except that it's in Iowa. But you know, I, won't. Pretty big, I pretty just big I, anybody there. listening to us from Iowa is probably like now like ending their <laughs> subscription. No, they get it. They get, we, they get it. We love you from Iowa. It's not that we don't love the people. It's, you know, it's just Iowa. Well, anyway. Well, well, one of our claims to fame was the uh, Field of Dreams. There you uh, go. Was filmed partially at our our seminary. Oh, so, cool! Yeah. I did not know that. Cool. Yeah, the li the library scenes where he's doing his research was filmed at the uh, claim to fame. Rock on! Yeah, so that's awesome. Um, yeah, so that uh, guess that brings us to our most. No, that doesn't bring us nope. there. My God, I'm messing this up. <laughs> well, it brings us to our uh, segment. Hey guys. Up edition. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So, how do you, do you how do you guys know that uh, God loves coffee? How? He wrote about it in the Book of Hebrews. But um, but um, I know I said I was oh. going to stop doing that, but I, I can't stop doing it. I, I really like that uh, that that <laughs> Predator Todd was screaming when Sal said that joke. I know. It's perfect. <laughs> I actually think it's a really good one, Sal. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy Thank you. Well, it is. Chris, you you keep going back to it, you know? Well, I mean, Chris doesn't have to listen to it every month, so. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> every month for how how long have we been going now? Like three, four years, something like that? Almost, yeah. Two yeah. and a half, three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah something like that. Um, so, okay, who wants to go first? What what y'all drinking? Well, why don't we let our guest go first? That sounds great. Yeah. I, I'm going with coffee. Perfect. Any type? Um. For years now, actually, um, the only coffee that I that I will drink is uh, Starbucks Sumatra, Ooh, and that is I, a good one. I I either make it with a French press and let it sit extra long so that it gets good and strong, or uh, I've discovered the way to make it strong in the Keurig, in which I use two of the pods and set it all the way to uh, iced coffee, but I don't obviously put ice into it. And so I, I end up with two pods, uh, a very small amount of very strong coffee, and then I'll put my milk into it. You awesome. really are a Gen Xer. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. So <laughs> he is, there's no doubt <laughs> about that. Uh, Chris's uh, Gen X, uh, Gen X uh, credentials are, are well-established. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things that Gen X that maybe you don't know about me, um, I was, you know, I was born in August of 1969, which is right at the peak middle of Gen X um, definitions. And I was born the weekend of the Woodstock concert. 
Mm -hmm. So that really kind of shouts it out. I was not born at the Woodstock concert, although I was raised in Woodstock. So uh, awesome. You were raised in Woodstock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Yes, cool. I, I, I have these memories, these, these very scant memories of being in the supermarket with my mother and there being topless women walking up and down the aisles, pushing <laughs> their carts. So, yeah, Woodstock was a very, very funny place in the 70s and early 80s. Interesting, interesting. Have, have you guys watched the, um, the documentary on Woodstock 99 on Netflix? Not yet, but I... I Dude. very vividly remember it. <laughs> I, yeah, it was a nightmare. It was insane. Yeah. I it, haven't seen it, but uh, I didn't even know that they did something on Netflix about it. But uh, my parents, my father still complains about it. Oh, yeah, it was as, as well. He, as well, he should. He uh, should. Yeah, it was it about was two miles from their house. Gosh. And uh, it, it was just absolutely insane. Everybody, every local avoided the area where oh. they were having that concert. Heck yeah. yeah. And it was just so, it just, you know, it was a moneymaker. It was the complete opposite of what Woodstock should be and yeah. uh, what Woodstock originally was. But you well, know what? I will say that some wonderful things came out of that concert. Yeah. Uh, locally, the, the, the site that they were going to be making, that they were having the concert on, it had been scheduled to be a, it would, they were going to turn it into a town dump mm -hmm. because it was right off the throughway and it would be easy to be a regional dump and they were going to have a massive incinerator there and the whole thing. And, uh, you know, the town folk were literally just up in arms. And then when they announced that they were going to be having the concert there, which was some years later, mm. it ended up really cementing in place that they could not do any such thing with that property, wow. like a dump or something. And now uh, some locals just bought all of that Winston farm area and are developing it into a real you know they're they're putting in housing they're putting in lots of commercial space they're really developing it in a way that will really benefit the community and so that you know probably would not have happened if the concert had not taken place there so right there, right. there are some benefits that come out of that and, and that's true i think of a lot of uh ill-fated situations and 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 bad things you know like there are it, not that you not that you want to minimalize the pain or the injustice of the bad thing because that is one separate issue but there are things that follow from bad things that tend to be good so there there is the bad and the good that happen in those situations but yeah i want to watch that documentary because that's like yesterday to me i remember as a kid wanting to go well, i wasn't a kid i was in high school i was like a sophomore junior and junior in high school uh when woodstock 94 happened and that was an that was an awesome concert and turned out to be a mud fest like the original one and then they tried to follow it up with 99 but 99 was nothing like 94 and certainly nothing like 69 i mean yeah. oh hold on so maybe it was 94 that i'm thinking about that you're yeah, thinking it was yeah. 94 that where it was at the winston farm yeah yeah, yeah it because it was at a it was at a decommissioned airbase <laughs> oh Okay. Just like yeah. what? nothing, nothing but tarmac, and like oh. it's like a hundred degrees. Every you gotta watch it. It's unbelievable. It, it's unbelievable. That's, yeah, I will have to go and look that up for sure. It's, it's worth it. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm talking, so I'll keep talking. Uh, yes. <clears throat> Back to I'm our coffee. Drinking, um, 
Nespresso. Um, my brother got my, my entire family Nespresso machines back in 2011. Mm. Um, we thought it was a nice gift. Ultimately, it was just because he wanted to make sure he could have the coffee he wanted if he came to visit him. But, um, <laughs> so... Uh, there is no is, true uh, altruism, my, is there? My, yeah, my my brother's born in '72, right in the heart of Gen X. Um, yeah. So, but uh, so that's what I'm drinking. It's decaf because I've been awake since 2:30 in the morning, and so uh, I've already had enough coffee to um, end somebody's life. So I'm trying to take be responsible at this point. Um, but then the little bonus thing is this hot sauce. Ah, uh, yeah. Heartbeat hot sauce. Dill pickle serrano, Ooh. and it's uh, by a company called Heartbeat Hot Sauce out of uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, and they just make just incredible hot sauces. And uh, this stuff, like we put it on hot dogs, we put it on burgers, we put it on basically everything. I've got it on some chicken nuggets right now. It's awesome. It's not too hot, but it definitely lets you know that it's there. Um, you know, I'm not going to like just straight up drink it because that would be ridiculous, but I would. It's that good that I would do it. Um, I would do it. <laughs> we're, we're big, big hot sauce heads in this house. We actually just, um, we're heading to Alaska next week. We have another baby coming into the family and um, we ordered the Hot One Season 18 lineup and sent it to Alaska so that we can do a, do a full, full rundown of the the hot sauces from the weakest to the unbelievably hottest. Uh, mm, I love the unbelievably movies. hottest. Oh my gosh. I live in that zone. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you had the bomb? I have not had the bomb. I've um, had um, down, uh, down South Carolina in a town called Helen, Georgia. Uh, there's a place called the pepper palace and they have, it's a similar thing where they go from the weakest to the hottest. Yep. So I brought that home and I, and they they have this like, pepper like shake seasoning that has all sorts of like ridiculously hot peppers in there that I shake onto my sandwiches every day so love it love it love it Man. plus plus those like you know you know like 10 million Schofield like <laughs> you know yeah. I think once you get pe past like like once you get into the millions of Schofield and, and then the tens of millions it, it just becomes like it doesn't matter well, no, yeah point. it's no longer <laughs> real like you can't get them that high naturally so no. what I'm going to do at some point is I'm going to send you and Sal and Chris if you would like one to experience this at some point um a bottle of De Bomb Beyond Insanity yeah and we will have a discussion about does hell exist on one of these shows if you if you send that, let's do it. I'll do and it. Then, and then we will take this sauce after we state our opinions, take this sauce, and I think your opinion will change. So does this mean we have to invite Chris back for this episode? I think we Chris, do. Chris, would you like to come back for the Does Hell Exist conversation? Yeah, I, I would love to come back anytime, but I will tell you that I am not a hot sauce person in any way, shape, or form. My family, my entire family laughs at me. Um, my my mother-in-law, she used to sit and just eat hot peppers just eat oh, them I'm sure just eat them and both of my kids really like hot sauce as well as well as as does my wife and i you know i i have the weakest palate for hot mm. sauce that you can possibly imagine i'll i'll my wife will make something and she'll put you know whatever into it to spice it up and i'll be eating and sitting and sweating and everybody's looking at me saying what on earth is wrong with you Got you. All right. Well, yeah. for your safety, then you can be in the control group. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll be in the control group. You'll be the <laughs> we control. gotta have you back on. <laughs> and, but I, I'm telling, I'm telling you, man, there is nothing like this. Um, okay, well, I'm game. Are you game, Sal? I'm game. I All mean, right. uh, Alice and I just planted some uh, peppers this spring for Calvin, and unbeknownst to us, we inadvertently planted hot peppers. So the hottest I pepper that you can I get naturally is habanero that's the hottest you can get naturally everything after that has been crossbred to some degree or another and right. it just gets ridiculous like the it's carolina reaper yeah. <laughs> yeah well we could have, yeah we could have a we could have a discussion about the uh discussion about the holy spirit at some point and we yeah. can all uh have some ghost sauce um, <laughs> holy ghost yeah i love yeah, it oh we really gotta good. do this this is gone. this is yeah. on well for for blake and for sal did you ever guys go to the uh this the hot sauce store the sauce store in galena you never did no they uh, it's an entire store of just hot sauces and, and they have jellies and jams and things like that too but we used to go in there and my kids would just sit there and try whatever hot sauce they could you know get their fingers on it was I would just smell it and, and my the inside of my nose would be burning. So I yeah, remember you need, going you need to, yeah, you need to stay away as far away from the bomb beyond insanity as you can, Chris. Okay. So so that'll get mailed to the three of us and Chris can watch us cry. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Is and how and, that's and I will work. laugh. And, I and laugh, laugh yes. as, as well you should, because it's a very dumb thing to do, and yet I keep on doing it. <laughs> and we gotta do it. This is great. So Sal, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Starbucks Nitro Cold Brew with sweet cream. I uh, decided to get get away from the uh, Death's Will this this month. Um, so, <laughs> the death, the Duncan swirly Duncan. Death's Will. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we've been. I've I've been trying to drink decaf because well, my doctor told me to for my blood pressure. Uh, now that. Now that Allison is uh, no longer pregnant and back to drinking coffee, she decided, you know, let's go back to decaf. So we're we have Dunkin' decaf in the house at all times. That's our every morning coffee. So I figured, you know, let's change it up this morning. Mm -hmm. and, uh, As somebody who suffers from, you know, anxiety, uh, coffee has uh, become a no-no for me. It, I, I do drink. I can't say I don't drink caffeine because I will have a Dunkin' Donuts refresher or a Starbucks refresher. But I have been avoiding coffee because it causes my heart to do weird things. It causes my stomach to go into knots. And it's just like, why am I doing this to myself? I do not need to be doing this to myself. So yeah. um, not that I won't have a coffee here or there, but I just I just have fallen out of drinking it. So well, I, uh, I, I did uh, I did get kind of a, a very gentle, polite hand slap by my doctor this last visit because I said I well I do drink a couple cups of decaf every day hmm. and she said okay but you realize there's a tiny bit of a bit of caffeine in that I said please don't ruin it for me <laughs> <laughs> yes there is just like non-alcoholic beers are technically not non-alcoholic but they are virtually non-alcoholic same thing with the uh, I mean it's so small I doubt that if you were that sensitive to caffeine, you'd have a whole other world of problems. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess that brings it to me. I am drinking Angry Eric. And of course, I got to put my hand behind this. Oh, I'm drinking Angry Eric. Uh, and that is a, it's called Fjord Crosser. And it is 
a Belgian styled India Pale Ale. Mm. And it that is sounds... beautiful. I can smell the hops from here. Mm. Yeah, okay. and the Belgian. Yeah, the Belgian uh, wheat, like, um, it actually kind of mellows out the bitterness a bit, but the bitterness is still there. So it's just like a really neat, like, cross between a Belgian and an IPA. So that's what I'm having. Uh, I'm pulling an early day today. <laughs> um, so that, I guess that, that ends our extended really uh hebrews segment um and uh so that brings us to our most excellent eighty segment <laughs> okay which means that it is also time for me to get rid of say uh this creepy predator style uh um you know thing here and we'll just go to something a little more cruel nice yeah dr feelgood okay so uh who wants to go first this is a, a, anything 80s segment so we can talk about our favorite 80s music our favorite 80s uh whatever well mine uh, is a mine is a crossover it touches on two genres um one of my all-time um what i think is one of the best um playlists you can get on spotify right now is called 80s training montage Ooh. And it's just a collection of songs from 80s movies during training montages. And it's awesome. Oh, like like Rocky training and Rocky training. Oh, and there's like yes. Iron Eagle is on there and some Huey Lewis in the news. Like it is every training montage that you are thinking of when I say that from an 80s movie, that song is on there. Um, and it's tremendous. And so um, that came to mind as I set out on a 60 mile bike ride last Saturday. And you know, how many of those training montages had somebody on a bike with somebody running after them, punching the air or something like that. And so I, my, the first leg of this, uh, this 60 mile bike ride that I did, I did with the eighties training montage. And I'm pretty sure it set me up for success that day. Awesome, awesome. awesome. Did it yeah. include chariots of fire? It did include chariots of fire, indeed. Yeah, yes. okay. yeah, that uh, has to be there. Push yeah. it to the limit. Uh, Iron Eagle, a song from Rad was on there. Anything from um, Flashdance? Yes, the Flashdance yes. song. Um, Holding out for a hero was on there. Um, oh, it's God. it's it is like a guaranteed blood good start sport. to the day playlist. Uh, <laughs> they have actually. I found it when I was when I was coaching CrossFit in Colorado and as coach you're in control of the radio and so the day i just like the day after i discovered it i walked in and put this on and it became the friday morning playlist for like six months mm -hmm. they just loved it um mm -hmm. so can't i can't recommend it high enough it is it is the best like random playlist you will come across on spotify right now no question that's awesome <clears throat> well i guess i'll go um i 
<laughs> you can see what I have behind me. Uh, Motley Crue's uh, Dr. Feelgood album, which I believe, I mean, there's a lot of good crew. I mean, but I, I believe Dr. Feelgood is like their, their height, you know? And, and I, I just, that album had so many good songs on it. Uh, virtually no fillers on it. I, it was just like one solid album that just, you know, and it was in an era that was like kind of a weird time for crew because uh, Nikki Six had uh, OD'd on heroin and had to go to rehab and, you know, cleaned his life up. Uh, Vince Neil um, was trying, you know, to not drink uh, after getting into an accident and killing uh, uh, hit the passenger in his car. So like they, they were trying to straighten themselves up um and yet they're putting out like like the greatest like probably one of the greatest 80s metal you know band uh albums uh, you know of the 80s i really do think that this album is one of the best i don't know if i'd call it the best because there's other really great ones but this this album is so solid and i think of like you know same old situation sos and uh i think of uh, home sweet home uh, Dr. Feel Good, of course. I mean, there's just so many good songs off this album that uh, to me, it is just, you know, obviously I could talk about Bon Jovi and go, you know, you know, into them. Everybody knows that. But Motley Crue is just, you know, they're up there for me. And I actually what brought them back to the forefront because I hadn't listened to them in quite a while was I, I rewatched The Dirt on Netflix. Have any of you seen that about yeah. Crue? If you Actually, haven't seen The movie. Dirt, it, it is a great movie for adults <laughs> because we are talking about crew here and they don't sugarcoat anything. I mean, they just don't like, you know, Tommy Jones running around uh, naked in the hallway. Yep, they show Tommy Jones running away around <laughs> naked in the hallway. And by the way, Machine Gun Kelly plays him in that um, in that film and he is excellent, man. He looks just like him, acts just like him, just just great. Um, and I also watched uh, Pam and Tommy on Hulu, which is about the Pam and Tommy sex tape scandal, which was very eye-opening and the damage that did not only to their relationship, but especially to her. Uh, <clears throat> she really was an innocent victim in all of that. And not to say that Tommy wasn't because, I mean, it was their marriage, their video, um, but, but he's a man, you know, and uh, the, the reaction people are going to have to his big, you know what, is uh, a lot different than they're going to have to her and you know and that was made very clear throughout this film so i think it's actually an important uh show to watch it's limited it's one season and done um and uh worthwhile uh so that's that is uh the crew end of it uh, but i also want to talk about the film uh, the Predator, which I have been watching, uh, I rewatched the series, and the re reason I rewatched the series is I noticed that they came out with a new film, I'll go back to this, they came out with a new film uh, called Prey on Hulu. I don't know if anybody has seen it yet. Uh, I saw the commercials for it. Yeah, it is, honestly, I, I can't ever place anything above the original. The original with Arnold was just phenomenal. And it really, I watched it. It's really not even dated to this to this date. I mean, you watch it and it works in our time as it worked back then, minus a few technological things. Um, other than that- Isn't um, it a prequel? It is a prequel. So, yeah. so this I think is the best installment of the series short of the original. And I really put it up 
on par with the original. And the reason why is they went 300 years ago to the time where the French were coming, you know, into from Canada down into North us what would be us what wasn't then and they were doing the fur trapping and the 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 uh, bison shooting and all of that and their first encounters really with with the um, comanche and uh, so they really brought comanche folk from the from the nation uh to consult with and did their homework and really showed the Comanche tribe and its culture as it would have been in that time, the way they would have thought of their women, because this is focusing on a woman who wants to be a hunter. And that was really not a thing, <laughs> you know, in that tribe. Um, and so they, they really take, they did their homework and they put together this really phenomenal anthropological film and then dumped the predator in it. And um, the predator becomes the prey. In the end yep. and it's it's really cool so it's, it's just a cool film they, they did a good job it was actually got a lot of uh praise for they do they use a indigenous cast so it's yes. all whether they're all comanche i don't know but i do know they all are indigenous you know other than the french canadian trapper yeah other than the ones who would not have been indigenous right <laughs> yeah so it's a really good movie yeah so it's it's great great film and and the other thing i like they do not translate the French. They have the French speak in French. And when you have the subtitles come up, they're just putting the French up there. You mm -hmm. cannot read what it says. And what I love about that is, is that's exactly what it would have been like for a Comanche person who crosses paths with these weird people with these weird weapons who are speaking in a weird language and you have no clue what they're saying to you. Uh, and the fear that that would produce um, and you feel it you feel it as you're watching you're like wait what what are they saying I can't understand <laughs> you know, it's like and I, I thought that was really brilliant the way they did that yeah. so they do have them speak in Comanche but mostly it's in English um, so you get to hear a little bit of Comanche but then they put it in English as if you're hearing Comanche kind of um uh that's the how they handle that but but the way they handle outsiders from the comanche uh in their own languages i mean it was really brilliant yeah that's awesome yep so that's my that's my pick those are my picks okay i'll get this creepy thing off again sorry <laughs> uh i'll go next uh my pick is i had a hard time with this but i just came back to what I've been kind of had on repeat lately. And I just recently watched uh, the latest season of uh, Stranger Things, <sighs> season four. And that is uh, 80s, even though it's it is not. 80s to yeah. the next. Uh, so my choice is not Metallica, which was the big hit of the season. It's actually uh, Kate Bush, uh, Running Up That Hill, mm. which is a song that I've always loved. Actually reintroduced to it with... Um, Placebo did a cover of it that was used by the History Channel about mm. 11 years ago when they did a special on Gettysburg. Uh, mm. So, so when the, what was uh, the name of the song again? Running Up That Hill. Running Up That Hill, okay. Yeah, by Kate Bush. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, uh, not to give too much away of Stranger Things, but one of the characters' favorite songs that it becomes a lifesaver is Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. Yeah. So, so, uh, and I found a couple of really good metal covers of, of it. 
So it's just, it's been on uh, repeat on YouTube. Uh, there's a Bardcore. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have heard of Bardcore. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's exactly what it sounds like. If you think of uh, medieval uh, instruments playing modern rock and heavy metal songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so look up uh, Bardcore running up that hill. Okay. Um, I just, I think I always related to the song just in case I don't have it, I don't have the lyrics with me, but um, kind of it's very much about relationships and, you know, if I only could make a deal with God and trade places type thing, I kind of, sometimes I feel like that's ministry. Right, right. <clears throat> that's yeah. my song. My, awesome. my backup, my backup was Tears for Fears, but because my first ever concert in the 80s was uh, Tears for Fears uh, with the uh, Sowing the Seeds of Love tour. Awesome. And when would that have been? Like, when, when would you have gone to that concert? I was in fifth grade, so 1989. Fifth grade, okay. Yeah. Yep. My sister wanted to go, so my dad took me and my sister. Yep. <clears throat> Rock on. All right, Chris, your turn. I'm not really sure quite how to respond. I mean, when it comes to music and thinking about the 80s, I mean, I, I've always been a really big Fleetwood Mac fan. Yep. And then in the 80s, you know, they, they broke up and uh, Christine McVie and Stevie Nicks went off and, and were doing their own thing. And I think that they produced some really great stuff yes. by themselves. And uh and that's so, I mean, totally eighties. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the music that I listen to is really seventies uh, into eighties. Mm -hmm. um, and when it came to, I mean, I remember in high school, and you know, there were the certain segments of kids who were into Motley Crue and and Twisted Sister and <laughs> and all Twisted of these Sister. groups, and I could never listen to them. And I and I think that that probably has to, a lot to do with my mother because my mother was always the controller of the radio oh forget it and yeah. uh and 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 that's uh, not what she was listening to <laughs> not not on your life would she listen to <laughs> Nor so i mean my parents. You know, throughout that period of time we were you know listening to the radio that was kind of bringing up a lot of the 70s stuff but then if it was 80s stuff it was things like the Gambler by Kenny Rogers. Kenny and Rogers. Alba yeah. and, I remember know, that because that's what my dad listened to. Yeah, I remember the well, Gambler. Yeah, and and this is the stuff that that I kind of grew up listening to and and can still sing all of the words to. Yeah. And so, so when it when it comes to music, I I I end up being a little bit lame um, when it so, comes to music and when it comes to sports also. It's just the two things enough. I never really dove into head first as so many others did how about 80s movies anything there 80s movies oh or some weird story from the 80s you can think of that you remember <laughs> <laughs> we'll make this very broad <laughs> make this very very broad um i'm not really sure okay i mean i i remember we had to go and see et five times oh et my, there you my, go my there father go. my father I remember I, seeing that. He in the will theater. still sit and watch ET, mm -hmm. and I don't understand why. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I have a nostalgic love for it, but I can't say I've watched it in the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, but I, I remember my parents taking us to see that in the theater. Uh, us, I don't even know. Yeah, my, uh, what year did that come out? I don't know. I was my sister was there. I I was in high school, and I remember I I I I had a date with my girlfriend. We went to the theater, and she wanted to see ET, so we went and we saw ET. And and I remember there were a number of girls there at the end of the film. They're they're coming out crying, and and I was just like, "What?" My sister was a toddler, and my parents brought her and I. That's right. My memory serves me correct. Yep. Yeah, I very I very clearly remember the. uh, the feds and whites and hazmats and all that. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's the only yeah. thing I really remember from that movie because I think I was four. And yeah. I remember relating to it because um, at that same time, uh, I'm trying to think I would have been, I was around four at that time. At that same time, I was in and out of the hospital and actually had at some point had a viral infection in my bloodstream uh and almost killed me so like that that scene where elliot is in like this like this bed with the the covers over it like that was what it looked like in the bed that i was in and i remember that so that always like kind of brought up i guess anxiety i wouldn't have uh really thought of it at that time but but it was something i related to uh not in a pleasant way and um i'll always remember that scene from that film because of that um but uh yeah i remember that's one of that's one of my earliest memories of seeing seeing et in the theater tell you you know as we kind of wrap this up the 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 movie that i think bridges the millennials like me the early millennials and the xers together is the never-ending story oh yeah and i will i a friend of mine posted like I am from the generation that watched the never ending story and learned that you can die from being sad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's so true. Like the, the never that, ending story that, was a gen X production. I mean, the people who worked on that story and who made that film yeah. were no doubt, <laughs> you know, right. were no doubt in that the mindset as they were making the swamp it. of sadness and just like, Oh man probably some boomers in there too but still yeah yeah (laughs) uh yeah no that's never-ending story wow i remember that too and i remember the never-ending story too with jonathan brandis who's no longer with us sadly that's right he killed himself yeah um well on that note (laughs) let's talk about gen x let's talk about gen x okay so yeah uh, so, uh, Sal, why don't you introduce our guest? So, uh, part of the reason we brought on Chris is uh, Chris just finished his doctoral work uh, uh, around the issue of Gen X in the church. Uh, I'll let him describe it because I'm sure he could describe it a lot better than, than I could. Uh, but he studied and looked at and researched uh, the, the role of or the lack the lack of Gen X in the church mm-hmm. um, and how that's affecting church growth, church just in general. Um, I think the four of us are probably the oddity of all being Gen Xers or Zennials who are or Zennials who are in the church and leaders in the church because um, that's not typical of Gen X. 
So, and on right. that note, uh, please correct anything yeah. I messed up, Chris. Sure. Um, well, uh, thanks for having me on this. Oh, this um, is exciting. Kind of exciting, yeah. It's overdue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but a good occasion for it to be overdue. Definitely. Yeah, um, yeah what I looked at was, uh, well, let me start out by saying, you know, having grown up in the church, I grew up Roman Catholic and, and was very, very much tied to the church, um, altar boy. My mother was a CCD teacher. My grandfather was a sexton, all nine yards. And when I went to college, I basically ran to college because one of the things I really wanted to get away from was the church. Um, because I was, I was the kid that was always volunteered for anything that was needed at the church. Oh, Chris will do it. And, uh, and so that really annoyed me. But the bigger issues that I had with the church when I was younger, um, I always tell the story. I remember in eighth grade, we had uh, earth science and Mrs. Bishop was talking about, you know, fossils and dinosaurs and all of these great things. And, and I went to our priest and, and I said, Father, why aren't dinosaurs written about in the Bible? And he looked at me and he said, if it's not in the Bible, it's not true. And I looked at him and I was like, but how can we deny bones? We have their bones. And he looked at me over his glasses and he said, if it's not in the Bible, it's not true. I was just talking about this and to somebody. <laughs> it just blew my mind and really started this questioning process in my head. And I think that that it, it was that attitude that, that affected so many people in my generation because the leadership in the church at that time, they were still either silent generation or, or even earlier baby boomers. And so they had this very absolutism type of attitude toward faith and, and, and not questioning anything. And, and my generation in the 70s and then into the 80s, education itself was just changing so dramatically. You questioned everything. And, and questioning absolutely everything. And yeah. so this absolutism just did not work for us. And so many of us, and, and really, you know, over 80% of Gen Xers were raised in the church, but almost all of them left. Okay, today, PCUSA has about 14% of their membership is Gen X, whereas about 65% is baby boomer or silent generation, which really brings the question up of where is the church going to be in 10 years? if not mass closings. Mm -hmm. And and so this is a massive problem. Millennials represent about 22% of the population. Everything else is boomers and, and, and silent generation, mainly boomers at this point. And so when I went to seminary, um, <clears throat> I'd been working in the mission field in the Middle East for a dozen years. And so when I went to Dubuque and went to seminary and then started doing guest preaching in some of the local churches out there, um, I really started thinking to myself, why are there no 40-year-olds here? Mm -hmm. You know, there was nobody, absolutely no one. And, and, and so this question really started dogging at me. And then when we moved to New Jersey, we came to New Jersey in uh, 2011, um, it was the same exact thing. I, I was serving this church that sat 350 people comfortably. It was a massive sanctuary, big church. Um, and there were maybe three or four Gen Xers. Um, and even their commitment was very sketchy almost all of the time. 
And so when I started doing my doctorate work, this kind of seemed to be the natural question that I really wanted to kind of get into and look at and, and really found some interesting things in that, you know, Gen X, you know, we know the church because we were raised in it, but then we walked away from it en masse for a handful of reasons, but we are extremely spiritually hungry. Over 80% of us will will absolutely say that we believe in God and that we believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God, <clears throat> but we don't want anything to do with the church. Because during the 80s, and I don't know if you guys remember these things, but I was, you know, finishing high school when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were, you know, going through everything that they were that going scandal. through, and Jimmy Swagger was crying at the pulpit about yep. needing forgiveness and all of this stuff. Remember. And 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 all of these things combined with the change in education and the change in technology, you know. I mean, for for me, you know. I remember very, very well as a senior in high school, my, my advisor saying, you really should take this new class that we're offering in, in computers. And so, you know, I took the class in computers and listening to the teacher trying to explain DOS, trying not to fall asleep in it, as most of the students <laughs> were in the same situation. And, and so trying to grapple with all of this new technology that was coming out, Growing up in a time when suddenly everything was going toward a mega mall versus Main Street, um, you know, and TV changing. I remember when we got cable, it was like the biggest thing that everybody was talking about on the school bus, you know, because most of our, all of our existence had been on TV channels. Yep. I remember, I remember you know? like thir there were 13 channels and it was a, I remember my grandfather had the old dial TV. Yeah, of course he did. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when cable became a thing. So, I mean, you know, I, we got cable in 1982 mm -hmm. and it was a, just, it was a revolution. It was an absolute revolution. You know, so I mean, between the technology, the media and politically speaking, when Reagan was, when Reagan was elected, you know, the, people did not know or realize at that point. My father was always a massive fan of Reagan. He thought Ronald Reagan was just awesome. And today he's, he realizes that that really wasn't the case, but you know, Reagan just did such an incredible amount of damage really, just so much. In, and, and for my generation, especially to the Department of Education, absolutely tore it apart um, after Jimmy Carter had really expanded it and built it back up. And, and that ended up bringing on, you know, in part, brought on the massive amount of cost that was uh, soon to become uh, lifelong student debt for for my generation. Correct. You know, I that's where know. that all started. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, Gen X ended up becoming the first generation that was going to have to deal with the lifelong debt um, <laughs> because of wanting to go to school. And I have it. I, oh, I yeah, I, I, I I was just talking with uh, with the property manager here at the church yesterday, and uh, we we're talking about the whole Biden taking away ten thousand dollars from you know student debt and this and that. And and I said to him, I was like, you know, I think that that's great, okay, but realize that 
you know, for those of us who have $200,000 in student debt, okay. 10,000 ain't doing much. Well, 10,000 isn't doing <laughs> It's still very good. Much, it's but still you know good. what? The principal that I took out was $60,000. Correct. But I have over $200,000 in debt From because interest. of the interest. And so yep. you're taking away $10,000. You know, nobody has to pay for that. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not, nobody's paying that $10,000. They're just taking out some of the interest that they're going to, you know. That's all so, they're doing, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that point in the 80s and, and everything that kind of happened between the 70s and the 80s, I, you know, from, from the, the Iran hostage crisis, where we were all tying yellow bows around every tree in our yard, to the Iran-Contra scam. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, all of these things had such an incredible effect on us as a generation that it helped us to not just turn away from the church, but turn away from so much in society and became a pretty cynical group. Yeah, um, uh, have, cynicism, have I would say, much, is the heart of the group. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and it yeah. has remained that way. But the thing is, is that now today we are getting to a point where you know, once you enter your 50s, you really start thinking about mortality. Oh, yeah. And you really start thinking about legacy. And because we don't have toddlers that we're running after or diapers to change or, you know, playing the chauffeur to our kids really anymore because they're all up and out and, and driving themselves, you know, suddenly now these topics become much heavier in our minds. And the church is the, the perfect thing that can really help to address some of those issues but we need to be invited back into the church right in, and, in a in a, an authentic way though in an authentic right. way which is going to require the churches who are you know and the and the people who are mainly boomers who are still there to understand the situation of generation x mm -hmm. because we're not going to walk back into the church feeling like we're misunderstood still um, our opinions and, and values and viewpoints don't really matter because the boomers are the ones that are in charge and they're going to do everything that the way they want it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, there's just a massive issue here. But the thing is, is that if the church were to, to reach out and really try to put some effort into this, I think that it would be massively beneficial it to the church as, as, as a whole. When I started doing this research, I, I called Louisville to the church center. And I asked um, who I could speak with that handles outreach specifically to younger people. And, and I was told, well, there's, there is an office that does outreach to millennials. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, can I speak to that person? And so I spoke to that person who just happened to be a Gen Xer born in 1970. And I said, you know, what is it that the church is doing to reach out to Gen X if there's an actual office that's opened to reach out to millennial and he just started laughing and he said absolutely nothing no and the funny thing is the church is outreaching to millennials when millennials are her thing of the past in a, in, a, in a way sort of i mean they're now but you've got this upcoming generation and other generations coming up and why are we it seems like we outreach behind the eight ball you know rather than ahead of it and oh yeah the, i mean the church is the church is the most reactive institution ever right we we're let people go and then we react right? we're reacting now because we're looking around and seeing our pews are empty and our coffers are emptying and yep. we need somebody to save the the thing that we love the building the space the whatever it is but you know 
one of the things that's happening at the congregation I'm serving is it's a it's a massive building, massive. Um, they also have they have unobligated memorials that they don't know what to do with that are larger than the entire budget of the entire church that wow. I previously served. That's a good they problem got, to have. They got, way. <laughs> the first thing I said to one of the people, um, I was like, tell me if I'm wrong on this. I want to be wrong about this. This church is going to run out of people before it runs out of money. And they said, oh, no, that's 100% true. Um, they got all the money in the world. But they're now realizing, oh, we don't have, you know, we're, we don't have any kids. Where are all the kids? Um, because Where they, are their they, parents? They didn't, they didn't care until they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now it's like, okay, where are you? Get back here. We need you. But they, you know. But, you know, there's a reason, there is reasoning behind that. You know, most likely all of the people that you're talking to at your church who are questioning this are baby boomers. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the thing is, is that back in the in the mid to late 80s and then obviously through the 90s and beyond, those baby boomers who were doing all of the work of the church and, and generally speaking still are. Mm -hmm. Okay. They gave up on their kids because their kids were just like, you're not getting me to go to church. So just stop. That's exactly okay. what happened. They gave yep. up on their kids, but then they turn around and say, well, maybe we can get our grandkids. That's exactly what happened. And that so is that's exactly why there ended up being this massive focus on millennials, because it was a baby boomers thinking, well, if we can just get our grandkids back into the church. Right. right. And, and there's always been this attitude, if we can get the kids and get them into Sunday school, we're going to build this foundation that will make them stay. Well, they did that with us. They built the foundation but we didn't stay You're because right. they didn't realize that the church of their church that they grew up and born and raised in was not the church that was going to be able to answer questions for their children. And I'll say this, Chris, uh, I can't speak for either of uh, Blake or Sal, but I was one of the we. I left the church and left it for a good eight, eight or so years Um and had no intentions of coming back. The only reason I really came back to the church is by. Always, always happens at the, at the key the, moment. The grace of God. Done. I froze, right? You froze. You did. Okay. Am I back now? You, you are. are. Okay. So I, I got to love my optimum, optimum uh, internet here. It's very optimal. Um, so, yeah. So. I'll just say that again. Basically, what, what I was saying is that I, I was one of the we. I left the church for a good eight or so years, and uh, but for the grace of God and the persistent love and uh, support of my mom, who gave me enough room to do what I did without uh, you know pissing me off and further pushing me away, uh, but she also stayed with me and reminded me of God in the church and and would invite me to go you know to her church with her just to you know to visit her her old uh, home church and if it weren't for that, I don't know that I would have ever come back. And I think there's a point to that, that you're making, Chris, is that the, by and large, the boomer generation did give, they gave up on their, I, I think partly because the boomer generation came from the silent generation where you, you tried to make the generation ahead of you have a better life than you did. And the boomers um, 
part of the way of, I think their way of doing that was just giving more leeway to their kids and, oh, they'll come back around when they have children. Um, and I'd have to and push that, back on that. And that, bit, and that, and the reason why I say that is because that's exactly what we see happening. We see, like you said, um, the, the boomers gave up on the Gen Xers and hoped that when they had kids, they would come back to church with the grandkids and bring the grandkids back. Um, and if that didn't happen. <laughs> Optimum is awesome. It really is. Way to go. Well, <laughs> again, didn't I? Uh, you did yeah. freeze up again. I, yeah, I would okay. like to push back on that just a little bit, though. I mean, it, sure. you're, you're right in that, you know, the silent generation folks <clears throat> raised their, their, their baby boomers to always want to strive for something better for themselves. And baby boomers, they did that with their own children, too. I mean, my parents always said, you know, yeah, we, you know, do better than us. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that their idea of what was better was work really hard, get enough money to be able to have that house, that two-car garage, a pool in the backyard. Yep. And they were miserable in doing it. I remember watching my father coming home from a, from a job that he really did not like, but he was doing it because it paid the bills. And Agreed. lots and lots of baby boomers, yeah. they, they stuck with those jobs, even though they hated them. Oh, my, dad's, then, my dad's a casebook. <clears throat> yeah. My generation, we, we end up watching our parents and, and grew up watching them, hating their jobs and, and coming back tired and, and complaining about their jobs. <clears throat> and then when my generation came around to finishing college and looking for work, we said, I don't want a job that I'm going to hate for the rest of my life. I want to get something that gives oh, me definitely. some meaning and some happiness and some joy and some fulfillment. And so then we went off and we did things that made us happy, right? which yeah. made our parents say, what the hell are these people doing? Right. You right. Know, I had, I had, I, you know, through school and schooling and, and stuff that I was doing, I ended up in the Middle East and get married there. And I'm, I was a school teacher teaching in the, in the Christian school system there. Not that I was going to church because I went, I left the church when I went to college and was not looking back. And the only thing that brought me back was getting involved with the church on the mission level that made me be able to see the church in a very different light. So how and does real, that, Yeah, I yeah. have a question. How does that answer the fact though, that by and large, and maybe it has to do with that they work themselves too thin. And I think that does have a lot to do with it. But how does that, by and large, answer the question of why? Why did the boomer generation decide to let their children, by and large, and I remember this as a kid growing up, being made to go to church, very, very little, less and less mm -hmm. kids were being made to go to church during that that era. And that just continued to to grow through the 90s and onward. Um, why 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 did the boomers let their kids go and hope for their grandkids. I mean, that that's okay. what seems to me happened. Yeah, and that is what happened. My parents, my father was born in 42 at the very, very tail end of the silent generation. My mother was born in 46, right at the very beginning of the baby boomer generation. Yeah. My dad's church, 45. Church was not a choice. You went to church, okay? But then a large segment of those were in the 60s who were rejecting the institution of the church. They were in, rejecting the institution of the government. 
They Correct. were institution, they were rejecting all of these institutional forms of control. And, and the church was very, very much a part of that. And so many Generation X, when we get to the 80s and they're having, or not gener baby boomers rather, later baby boomers, when they're having their own kids in the 1980s, are not forcing the church down their throat as my parents who were earlier in that Correct. generation were. Okay, and so you started to have this weaning away from the church in the 1980s because those later baby boomers were also rejecting and that's what I that had been being put forth. And that's what well, I was trying to get at in saying that those baby boomers, maybe not all of them, but but I, I do think that part of what they thought was better was not forcing your kids to be mm -hmm. in church. Yeah. Well, well yeah. Matt, can I can I jump in? Sure. Um, I can jump in after you. Sure. You got it, Sal. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sal, you don't get to talk. You're sitting outside. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the things that, and Chris, again, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm always ready to be wrong and learn something new. Oh, same. But, um, one of the things that I'm seeing just from a church structure standpoint in the way, you know, and I had a conversation with my new EP this week. She talked about a boomer a boomer pastor who retired who confided in her and said you know we we did a really good job of making church members we didn't do a good job of making disciples yeah that's and, for sure and one of the thing that i one of the things that i think about my first memory of church when you ask me my first memory, my first memory of church is angry old people staring at the guy talking up front. <laughs> now they weren't actually angry, but you know the face that I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were just getting through their public appearance for the week to be good church members. And I hated it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want anything to do with it until I went to summer camp, which Chris is a lot like your mission experience. We felt something that was actually uh, seemed like the kingdom of heaven had actually drawn near a little bit. Mm. And that was compelling. The church was not. Mm. And, That's what brought me in. And, and to bring it then to where we're at now, I'm getting hassled to get this 14 year old confirmed. We got to get him. This woman, his grandma, talks to me about getting him confirmed every week, every week in the, in the handshake line. Yeah, great sermon get this kid confirmed. And I'm like, have you asked Mason <laughs> um, if he wants to do that? Um, because if he does, let's do it and let's do it right. And let's make it so that this is a faith that's meaningful to him. But I think that's kind of where I see the separation where, you know, there's um, generationally, it seemed like somewhere in the boomers, the, the, the Woodstock crowd was raised on duty, but broke free from it. Mm -hmm. but now they can't understand why their kids don't mm -hmm. believe in duty <laughs> well <laughs> like look, duty to the church and, you know generation x we became the first group that said we're not going to church just because it's sunday and right if we're going to go to church we want it to mean something and we want there to be a reason behind it right but before that no you went to church on sunday because it was sunday and that's what you did what you did and so now we're expected. getting grandparents that are yep. trying to get their grandkids confirmed even though the parents don't go to church 
mm -hmm. try to get another crack at the duty, the duty, the, the duty cycle, um, duty. Sal, <laughs> 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 so, you're up. Speaking Why? of duty, Dad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just fine. Um, no, I, I mean, I had a similar experience to Blake. I mean, my, my mom was born in 43, my dad in 46. So they're, they're prime examples of, uh, you know, the Woodstock generation of, you know, baby boomers, you know, sex, you know, love, free love and all that stuff. And I think my, my parents both, my mom was raised very strict Baptist. My dad was raised Roman Catholic. I think when they got married, they, they decided we're going to, not force that on our, our children. Um, but at the same time, when we lived in Japan, we had, my parents were good friends with the, the Navy chaplain. You know, we would go to Northeastern you know, Christmas on the Navy base. So we were exposed to church, but it wasn't like a every Sunday uh, exposure. Because um, they, they wanted us to choose our own path. And I think I remember vividly when we moved back to New Jersey in the late 80s, 87, 88, um, we didn't go to church. I think around 89, 90, like we kind of started looking for churches, uh, but nothing really came of it until 94 when I could Blake, uh, his Presbyterian church down the street who was pastored by our neighbor, was doing confirmation classes. And part of that was, uh, required trip to church camp. And that's where I became engaged and found, oh, this is someone, something I want to do. Um, so I don't know, I think that there's that weird generational thing where they didn't want to force it on us, but they also, my mom always wanted us to be exposed to it. You know, I, my mom spoke in my ordination because she was a spiritual influence, albeit not a church influence. Mm. Uh, so my my dad always used to joke that you know my grandfather probably dumped me in the in the kitchen sink a couple of times because they refused to baptize us i mean i wasn't baptized until i got confirmed at 14 that that's an I, issue in my household in which my grandson who is now just turned four years old has not been baptized. And my wife, who my wife is, is from the Middle East, she's from Bethlehem, and has that very uh, kind of almost baby boomer attitude towards duty in the church and doing and, 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 and whatnot, is constantly arguing with me to baptize our grandson. And, and I constantly have to say to her, but it's not our decision. It's his right. parents' decision. And, and unless they are going to say, yeah, let's baptize our child, I, I can't just take them to church one day and dunk them and, 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 and call right. it good. It doesn't work like right. that. You know, right. in the Orthodox well, Church, yeah. where she comes from, it does work like that. And so that's why she's kind of, you know, really hyper about that. But, you know, issues of baptism, issues of, of confirmation, how many people are getting married in the church today? Right. You know, I mean, people have given up on that even, you know, I mean, I, when we were in South Jersey, uh, a member of the church came to me and said, listen, I wanted to talk to you, my friends, they want me to marry them. So I need to get one of these online certificates. But what do you think? And I was just like, do not do it. Please do not yep. do that. 
and uh, she did that. it anyway, you know, because that's what her friends wanted. And and so the the entire the role of the church in the life of society has has in so many ways gone astray. Yeah. Um, and it certainly did start with a certain segment of the the boomer generation revolting against the institutions and so on. Whereas my parents never revolted against anything. And I think the mm -hmm. majority of boomers did not. And that's why so many of Gen Xers were raised in the church. Um, but it started to thin out. And by the 80s, when when my group was really coming of age, you know, we really, you know, what's the point? Why are we doing this? One, it's boring. It doesn't speak to us. It's, you know, they don't listen to us anyway. So who cares? I, re I remember my grandfather one time he was saying something and I interjected and said, you know, well, what about this? And he said, oh, be quiet. You're just a kid. You don't know anything. You know, I, I mean, that was very much an attitude of, of our grandparents and some of our parents. And, and that just added to the, I don't want anything to do with what it is that you're doing. Mm. And then how many, how many of us kind of throw our hands up in the air with our teenagers realizing that we can't really tell them anything oh yeah i can't tell my six-year-old anything <laughs> <laughs> well good luck there good luck when you it gets know, older <laughs> when she yeah. he or she gets older yeah <laughs> yeah it is it is gonna it is gonna Ada, change yeah. the world or she's gonna rule the world um there there's going to be no in between uh, yeah <clears throat> now that's um, my my lorian too <laughs> I, I i probably am going to start to uh, you know i i have just in kind of kind of i can't like back it up back it up but in my work as a chaplain i'm seeing more and more people who aren't baptized and i'm sure you know when i get asked to do these funerals you know i ask i ask the family oh the only question i ask is were they baptized because that makes a difference how i as a christian pastor do the funeral and i i don't doubt i'm going to start seeing people who work and it's yeah. going to have effect how i do oh, the yeah. service oh yeah and, and but i've also oh, go ahead i've also i've also experienced sort of how the boomers because you were saying they and the older generation the silent generation of the whole structure but this is the expectation and the structure and the, all that for the first five years of my ministry, boomers could not understand how I could be a minister of warden sacrament and not have a church. <laughs> it boggled their mind. Right. Well, right. here's here's the fun little secret. As you said, Chris, in 10 years, almost none of us will have a church and we'll still be ministers of word of sacrament. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. I'm, you know, we're I'm I'm preparing in whatever ways I can right now to not be a full-time pastor because I'm not going to make it. There's there's almost no way we're go I'm going to retire that way because we want to be with family because that's what makes us happy. So we're going to move to Alaska and there's like 12 churches. Um, so you're going to you have know, to do part-time and you can so be a vocational you're pastor. You're going to have yeah. to do something else. Um, to hospice. Or, or, or we have a situation in which the church actually changes and really does do the things that need to be done. Now, you know, as as dark as the future of the church in this country, I think oftentimes seems to everybody. At the same time, the church has had much, much darker times in the last 2000 years. Absolutely. 
and, and I think that there is always hope. And and the church has had to change, has you know, I, 500 years ago when we had the Great Reformation, you know, I mean, you know, there's there has at the point of being pushed and prodded into it and, and put to the point of, you know, this doesn't work anymore, period. Change takes place. Well, the greatest and Catholic I, and I argument. I do think that we are in the point where we're at that point right now where there needs to be a massive reformation with inside of the church. Absolutely. And the church needs to become something that it has not been in the last generations. Absolutely. And you all know this in ministry now, and Sally, including you as a chaplain, you all know the difficult road it is for pastors such as us uh, who who really see that we understand the bigger picture uh, and what we need to do, but trying to convey that to the people who think that they've, you know, again, <laughs> I hate to yeah. say this, but sometimes pastoring feels like the bad parts of parenting, right? Like where... Yeah. Where you have to sit down with your kids and say, I know you think you know it all, but you, but you don't. You're missing the big picture here. And, yeah. and that's a hard uphill battle. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you're you're kind of seeing to that point of needing a change. I'm kind, You're kind of seeing that now with the younger millennials and whatever the next generation after millennials is called. Z. They want Z. They want, yeah, they, want Z. they want that nourishment. They want Absolutely. There's, there is a desire for orthodoxy and for the ritual and the church. They just don't want it the way it's been. And the boomer yeah. thing of contemporary worship is ancient now. Yeah. <laughs> you might as well put we're, that up with, with you know, always, like Martin Luther's hymns. I mean, the church is always the church is always at least a generation behind in what the trends are. Uh, and I think maybe I see it more plainly because in chaplaincy. Uh, like I've said to other pastors, I fill that gap where I'm pastoring to your folks who don't come to church. Um, I'm meeting people where they are, whereas, you know, not that you guys don't, but, you know, you're kind of bound to what your your church structure, ministry structure, whereas as a hospice chaplain, I'm going into the house and in places where some pastors never get to go. So I'm meeting these younger generations who are caring for their older Gen X and boomer parents. Uh -huh. um at the time of death and yeah. i'm providing more providing more of a, a sense of what the church could be than their pastors ever did and oh, yeah. and that's 100 the case sal i mean i mean i i run into lots of those situations as well um but i it just kind of reinforces in my mind that the church has got to be about truly inspiring and educating people about spiritual questions in their lives because we all have them we all have them and it's not about the ritual it's not about being there at sunday at nine o'clock and being sure that we're out of there at 10 o'clock you know that's not what it's about and 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 really it never should have been but it became agreed <laughs> about that you know when we were in south jersey there was this uh, elderly gentleman he was he was around 85 or so and everybody told me, watch out for George. He's a stickler. And in years past, he would, uh, if, if, if the service was running long, the service was always at 1030. And at 1130, if that service was not over, he would go, get up out of his seat. He would walk around the front of the church in front of the pew 
and walk out through the side door. And when he was passing the pulpit or passing the minister, wherever they were, he would tap his watch looking at them and walk out because it was 1130 and it was time to be done. And, and over the course of my time there, um, through Bible studies, through conversations, through book groups, through all different types of things that we were doing, he started coming around and seeing that it's not about just the ritual of doing what it is that we're supposed to do, but it is about the spiritual questions and what it is that we're getting out of this. And, and what, what is our relationship with the God that we believe in supposed to look like and be? And mm. how are we supposed to react to that? And, and so in the last few years of his life, he started to get that. And then he actually ended up becoming my, my biggest uh, my biggest supporter inside sure. of the congregation because he started to see that it had to all change. It had to be different. Um, and but praise it's God hard for because people. not all ministers are in that place of thinking as mm -hmm. of yet. No, they certainly aren't. And there are ministers and probably a majority of them who are boomers. <laughs> so they're still of the boomer yeah. mindset. I mean, that's what the church is dealing with right now, yeah. uh, in part, you know, and that's not to knock their ministry or what they do and the validity of the ministry that they do in the context that they do it. But a lot of them are not equipped to think in lines and in terms of Gen X or beyond, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, most churches are still absolutely encapsulated by the idea of we've got to really have an awesome VBS. Yes, an awesome VBS and a great praise band <laughs> mm -hmm. or something like that. Yes. And neither of those, I mean, both of those can bring people in. I'm not saying they can't, but neither of those are going to create sustainable ministry that's going to last forever. You know, and that's that's the deal. Like we we put band-aids rather than come up with, you know, ask the hard questions and come up with real solutions. I, I think an important starting place in this conversation also is the realization that if we look around the world, the church is actually on fire. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. the church ain't dying, that's for no, sure. It's growing. It is not dying by any stretch of the imagination. It's just our lazy with inside of our society, with inside of European society, yeah. our complacent you know, society. Yep. Yeah. Complacent, yeah, the, even though we shouldn't be in any made, level. The thing that we made is dying, not the church. Correct. The man-made institution difference. in the Western church. What uh, we have yeah. decided church ought to be is the thing that is dying. Yeah. The, well, that's, the, that's, look at the history. The Western church was the center of Christianity for, what, 1,200, 1,500 years? And yeah. now it's not. And so to us, it's dying. But to the world, it's growing. If only people listen to that rascally copenhagen uh guy by the name of soren kierkegaard back in the day when he said <laughs> christendom is not christianity <laughs> right. yeah and they Sorry, hated him dog. for it but he was freaking right <laughs> well hey guys i gotta go full millennial and duck out early um, okay so <laughs> i got well, i got kids to pick up so you duck out you can have, a, you can have an all gen x bonus episode perfect <laughs> complain perfect. about the millennial shirking his duties Peace. <laughs> Go back to the basement. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Good to see you, Chris. See you Good later. to see you too. Be well. Um, yeah, so I guess this is uh unless you have anything else you want to bring up, I we do have to mention that this is not just some research that that uh 
Reverend Dr. Christopher Doyle has done, but that he actually has a published book you can go and purchase on Amazon and other places, I'm sure. It is called uh, Responding Faithfully to Generation X, and I cannot read the subtitle. What is that? Yeah, the, the subtitle is Why Gen X Rejected the Church on Mass, What It Means to the Future of the Church and What We Can Do About It. Yeah. Because I also, the last chapter, I really outline what it is that, that uh, Gen Xers are looking for in the church and how the church can respond to that in a way that could very easily invite them back in. And, and it's, it's an important topic that really has to go beyond uh, just the casual conversation um, after church on a Sunday morning. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And uh, I actually purchased the book. Uh, I will have you know, I have yet yep. to read it, but I will be reading it. It is a topic of interest to me because uh, again, many people my age are, have nothing to do with the church. You know, they, yeah. they have, and they're, they are, I mean, like you said, the heart of Gen X is it's cynicism. I mean, and, and it came out of, like you said, the Woodstock gen, I mean, it came out of the boomers, especially the Woodstock generation that were questioning everything that carried on to us, but in, 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 uh, you know, in carrying on to us the questioning everything, we also started to question the things the boomers were doing, like going yeah. to church on Sunday. Why do we have to do that? Yeah. What's the point of doing that? Well, I would like to invite you then, uh, mm -hmm. especially if you already got the book, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to my churches uh, that I'm serving now, we're going to, we've had a, we've had a book group ever since the pandemic mm -hmm. <laughs> came on. Um, and trying to find ways to connect with each other and still be active. So we started a book group and we've read uh, just a whole ton of really great books, but we're going to be using this mm -hmm. as our, ne our next book to read as a group and to be able to have the discussions around that. And so I would love to invite you to be a part of that. We, I would love we, that. We meet on Thursday evenings at 7.30 via Zoom. So it's very convenient. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm always looking to widen this conversation because I do believe that it is that important of one. I can't promise I can be at every one, but if I can be there, I will be. Yes. Um, I will email you the please, link and, and keep you up to date as to where we are. Please it, do. I would love to join that conversation because I, I do really, and that's why I was very excited when you had stated that you were going to be doing this as your your doctoral, you know, thesis. And, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely vital. I mean, we have entirely skipped and then we've skipped an entire generation and what that equals. I mean, how long is a generation typically like 20 years or a little less? Well, And uh, this is, this is actually, there's a massive discussion about that in the book, but, right. um, you know, typically generations have been 15 to 20 years, 15 to 20. Right. But, That's what I thought. but there is an argument and, and I really support the argument and the argument has been put forth by other anthropologists, but that the generation should not be kind of segmented by just random groups of years Mm -hmm. but they should be grouped by experience. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's why, you know, gen baby boomers generally go from 46 mm -hmm. after World War II finished until 1962, which is when the birth control pill came in yep. and <laughs> stopped the boom. Hey, what do you know? And, <clears throat> and stopped the boom. And then, and then you have this next generation coming in, which is me, 
Okay. And, and we're the generation that, you know, we remember the seventies. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, I, I remember very, very well, the whole Iran Contra scandal. I remember seeing Ford on television. I remember when Watergate was a thing that they were still talking about. And then all of the changes that happened in the 1980s um, in, in 79, various I was, different changes. I, I was in fifth grade when Ronald Reagan won the, the election in 1980. Wow. And I remember very, very well the support that Reagan had. Um, but then looking back on it, realizing how unaware people were as to what it was that the government was doing in the mm -hmm. 1980s that literally changed so much for the worse in this country. And mm -hmm. I know that I'll have pushback on that and people arguing with me. But if you really get into it and look at and see what it was that the government was doing at that point in time underneath that leadership. It was absolutely destructive. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and, uh, and, and my generation ended up becoming the ones that really ended up having to carry so much of the brunt of what those policies were doing that were being carried out. Um, it really caused a lot of my generation um, to just want to get away from it all. Mm -hmm. um, when I was living overseas, I remember talking to this guy and he was a, he was, he was very close to the ambassador to Czechoslovakia when Czechoslovakia was still Czechoslovakia. And uh, he was saying how in Czechoslovakia, one of the biggest problems that the government is having is what to do with all of the Americans my age who were moving to Prague and, and other places in Europe um, and teaching English and just not wanting to be in the US. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I always say I missed the 90s. I, I did, I completely missed the 90s. I wasn't here for any of it. You know, I, I, I to this day, I've never seen an episode of Seinfeld. Good for um, you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that in certain respects was a very typical experience of Gen X because, you know, we were more interested in climbing the Himalayas than getting a job working for GE like our parents did. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed our outlook on life, but then also on the church. And that's something that has to be addressed, mm. which is not typically at all. By anybody no no gen x is is a lost generation but we don't um, have to be we but don't we don't have, have to, be. to be right there's no reason to be a lost generation there's really no reason uh, yeah. except that we've just said eh, screw them <laughs> you know like in essence i mean maybe not in such words but in essence that's what we've said yeah very much so and and then and then you know you take that you know, forget the finer points of generations and whatnot, but you take that 15 to 20 year gap, throw that into the mix. And how does the church survive that gap? It doesn't, at least no. in the way we're doing things. Yeah, the way we're doing things. I mean, that's why there has got to be a massive shift. And I mean, if you look at church history, the, the church has generally always gone through some type of massive, massive change every 500 years. Yeah, You know, it started out yeah. as this house church and, and people gathering together in their homes. Yep. Um, and then once they started gathering in churches, the church suddenly became institutionalized. And then suddenly it was the Holy Roman Empire. 
and then we had the Reformation, and now we're we're really ripe for another Reformation, and it has to happen. And do you remember the argument of the Roman Empire overall against Luther's wanting, well, not just against Luther's questioning the doctrine of the church, but also the potential split that would happen? Their argument was that this is going to fracture and destroy the church. Well, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it did it did well, in, in it certain did. respects it did it did but it but it didn't in the big grand scheme of things and i i do agree that um sometimes yeah there is a tearing down to build back up but at the same time yeah. that's necessary i think it's necessary yeah. when we were in in mission uh we were in mission with pcusa and my wife and i and Every three years, the missionaries have to come back into the States and do what's called itineration, where we go around and we speak in churches and about our work and everything. And mm -hmm. we came back into the States after three years and we did nine states in three months. I'm mm -hmm. um, just constantly traveling around. And at this church in Michigan, I was telling folks about what it was that I was doing and, and my work and everything. And a woman afterwards, she said to me, you know, I think it's marvelous what it is that you're doing, but you have to realize that the Middle East, Africa, South America, Asia, wherever, they are not the biggest mission field anymore. The United States is the biggest mission field, and we desperately need missionaries to come in and do this type of work here. And, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. But mm -hmm. she was completely right. You know, so whereas we may see ourselves as pastors, parish pastors, and so on, we really do have to take the attitude of we are also missionaries. And, and that attitude really has to be brought into all it is that we are doing here in this country that desperately needs to, to not just hear and hear the word, but they have to understand the word. And Absolutely. I think that once they understand yeah. it, there's a light bulb that will go on and and people will react and respond the mm -hmm. way that will be beneficial to um the way that the church needs to be absolutely absolutely you, know, you can you can see that manifested in the growth of the uh korean korean uh, in both of our denominations just the growth of the korean churches recent missionaries after world war ii and now they're sending them back so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like we said before, the growth of the church is not in the not in North America or Europe. It's no, else. but that's the church throughout history, right? The church has never remained static or in one place as an epicenter. It has constantly spread and grown, and um, you know, like we think we we thought coming into America, uh, that we were going to be the city shining on a hill to the rest of the world of what Christianity, what a Christian nation should look like, which is kind of counter to anything that our founding fathers talked about. But this is, you know, when the Puritans came, this is what they imagined their, their world to be. And uh, it clearly was never that. And, um, and it's also arrogant to think that a church that has continually grown, moved and changed is going to you know suddenly be you're gonna you're gonna be the bastion of that <laughs> you know so we're you know as americans and as westerners i think we're 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 eating our humble pie right now you know <laughs> well as it says in scripture that you know the the work is overwhelming and the workers are few few and, uh, and they always have been yeah 
Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, you know, when you look about how many disciples Jesus had, I mean, there were the 12, and he had more probably than just the 12 that were mentioned. But when you look at disciples to followers, followers to people who just occasionally show up to listen because he's a famous person, you, you really have very few people working with him and more people just coming to hear and then going off on their on their yeah. way saying we saw Jesus. <laughs> but hopefully in the time they you know, change planting, planting yeah. seeds. Planting seeds. And that's always been the work of the church is to mm -hmm. plant seeds and not not base our success on human standards like numbers, mm -hmm. but on impact and on what we're doing for the kingdom. I mean that's always been the way we should measure it versus the way we have been measuring it, which yeah. has been a very worldly way. Yeah. And our churches continue to pr propagate that, you know, yeah. I'm in the middle of conference season right now doing like how many people I baptized. Yeah. If and, I baptized and, one, it's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what, it, you know, a lot of, you know, we're, many of us are in smaller churches. The majority mm -hmm. of churches are smaller churches. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on Sunday morning, we're we're still kind of coming back after the pandemic. You know, we're streaming our services. And so we have a number of people that stay at home and watch the services. And so we'll have 25 to 30, mm -hmm. maybe pushing 40 people in church on a Sunday. And people get very, very frustrated by that. Sure. Sure. Very frustrated. And and I always have to tell them, you know, you know, take what it is that you get from here. And go and plant it someplace else. Absolutely. And keep in mind that the church is always full. Absolutely. Because the church is not just the people who are physically here sitting and listening. But, but all there's the, the spirits of all of those people who have mm -hmm. sat here over the course of many, many years who are still here with us. They are. And so you really <laughs> need to, yeah, yeah, you really need to always see the church is full. And I think that that will help to change some of the attitude of frustration. Stop being so damn pessimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because anybody who has taken American church history or Western church history knows we're always in declension, always. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like every era is talking about how they're losing members. Yeah. It just is the truth. In 1932, the church that I served closed down for three years because there was nobody to come to church. Mm. And then in the mid-30s, in the in the heart of the Depression, they opened back up with a very tiny little fractured community. After World War II, they expanded. Obviously, people were, you know, it, my grandfather, who was a part of the D-Day invasion, who was always involved in the church, but came back from World War II with a very new vigor for the church from sure. what it was that they had seen these examples of how horrible it is that we treat each other and that the church and Christ and the word of Christ, the teachings of Christ address how it is that we treat each other and how it is that we need to treat each other so that we cannot be such a bitter group of people um toward each other and the world and and you know we're in a downward slope right now i don't know if we pit it out at the bottom yet or not i i kind of don't think that we have but but uh there are things that can be done mm -hmm. i think to reverse some of that but it really does come with a major there has to be a sea change with inside of the cultures and you know, the, the most dangerous thing that, that I've heard and continue to hear at session meetings and within church groups is, but we've always done it that way. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, always. people need to stop saying that because that has, you know, Christ would never say, but we've always done it this way. He introduced something completely new. Yeah, and that's what it is totally that we new. have to be doing too. <laughs> right. And Paul went from saying we've mm -hmm. always done it this way to, hey, I'm going to do it new. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that, that was yeah. the and, conversion. And right. We all have to be Paul. We all have to be. Amen to that. Stop bitching about Paul. We all have to be Paul. <laughs> I mean, granted, we can we can argue the finer points of his his opinions on certain things if they were his opinions, uh, but we need not argue against his spirit or or what he did as as a Christian. I mean, we need to be doing what Paul did, and that is opening our hearts to Christ and then following. <laughs> mm -hmm. And let you know if people are going to judge us down the road, so be it you know, okay, if it's due, it's due, but, but do the best you can for Christ building the kingdom while you're here. And then you will enter the kingdom when you're not here, mm. which will be here, which is very confusing. Yeah. Um, but Hey, yeah, it's it, a, a, dis a discussion <laughs> about Paul would be a wonderful topic for this. You, I think. you know what, Chris, uh, if we, if, and when I should say, when we have a discussion on Paul, we'll bring you in on it. I, I would love to be a part of that. Me too. I'm a Paul. I I'm very Pauline, so I I would love yeah. to talk about that. And yes. I know I know Sal is too. Very much. Yeah. You take away Paul. You take away. You take away the very well, foundation the theology of the away from the church. And <laughs> exactly. honestly, the Gospels were written post Paul, so <laughs> the Gospels are are informed by Paul as much as the. It's, it, it, that, that is one thing that's always perplexed me is that Paul's letters were circulating before those, some of them anyway, before those yeah. gospels were written. And, and it boggles my mind when people say get rid of Paul, when if you Jesus. did, you'd get, you'd get away, you'd take away the theology of Jesus. You wouldn't have your communion liturgy, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I was just <laughs> explaining to some folks uh, in Bible study how, you know, the the gospels tell the Jesus the story of Jesus. Yes. Okay. And and they 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 tell us the lessons that Jesus was putting out there. Acts tells us the history of the early church, and Paul explains the lessons of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and Paul and is so, in the uh, early church. Paul yeah. is in the early church. Yeah. He's the closest we've got. Yeah. Jesus, you know. Well, you've got Peter, you've got Jude, you've got James, you've yes, got John. Yes. You've got, if you know, they are the if they are the historical authors, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but yeah, but Paul may or may not have liked women. So there you go. Well, what was he that? may or may not have liked women, but you know, <laughs> and, I, and I, I, I would argue that he did like women and that just certain things got included over time. Um some I, some I, of those some of those letters were probably not even written by Paul, you know. So I say that maybe a student of his or something. Yeah. yeah. I, I say that jokingly because that seems to be the main. That's the main critique. argument against them. He hated women, right? Yeah. <laughs> which yeah, there which is no I, proof for. I I have to disagree with that. I also. totally disagree I, with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, Paul may have said, "Women, you must honor your husbands," you know, in all that they do. But he also taught, which but, is what people oftentimes forget about is that husbands you need to treat your wives as christ taught as the church right christ loved the church the church right right so, so i mean so. you know he was putting forth equality it was total absolute equality, equality. and <laughs> and you know i know that people will say oh well he was patriarchal and this and that well of course he was it was 2000 years ago of his how time. could he, how could he ever not be 
We all are. <laughs> we're not patriarchal, but but we're all a product of our time. Like we only mm -hmm. know what we know. <laughs> yeah. And hey, if you're uh, gonna judge him on that, we're screwed. <laughs> so, hey guys, I, I think we I think we just kind of did our bonus thing. Oh, Paul. Yeah. There you go. That's true. Um, that's true. I actually had a really good idea for a bonus thing if you want to do it. Um uh, just because, well, here's the good idea for the bonus thing. Uh, well, let's end this segment and then we'll talk about the good idea for the bonus thing. How does that sound? Sounds good. So with that said, all of you non-patrons, you might want to consider paying $5 a month to jump on and become a patron and find out exactly what we are going to be talking about, which we teased but did not share. And with that said, remember, be excellent to each other. And don't be a jerk. And in, on behalf of our fellow ghosts, uh, uh, Blake, Skull. Cool. <laughs> Rock on and uh, take care. Rock on.